Hello and welcome to Making a House a Home, the podcast that is brought to you by Housing Europe, the European Federation of Public, Cooperative and Social Housing. My name is Michal Kudis and we're back after quite a while indeed. Sorry for the gap. Uh, we hope you missed us. We certainly did. And here we are reaching out to you again from Brussels with an episode dedicated to an issue everyone in Europe has been talking about over the last years, migration. The refugee crisis, the action plan, the integration process, you know, these are the, just a few of the keywords that have been, coming up, uh, have been coming up again and again in the news. We will try to make the link uh, with the place that is the key for the migration challenge in Europe, and that is housing, of course. Part of today's fifth episode will be brought to you from the European Parliament, where the final event of the Designing Inclusion Erasmus Plus project was held on October 18th. We will be hearing from the people behind it, especially the academic staff, from uh, Kao Leuven, what are the project's main findings. How does one city produce inclusive urban spaces? We will also meet the Italian socialist MEP Brando Benifei, who has been the rapporteur of the European Parliament report on refugees, social inclusion and integration into the labour market. What is the policymakers' view on the issue? In the second part of today's show, we will ask Housing Europe's research assistant, Amariel Willem, to give us an overview of the key findings of the latest briefing produced by the European Federation of Public, Cooperative and Social Housing, entitled Pathways to Social Inclusion. Finally, we will have the chance to meet a dynamic group from the Netherlands involved in one of the continent's, I would say, most successful inclusive projects, Startblok Rikerhaven, that co-houses Dutch students with young migrants who have been granted asylum in the country. So, I invite you to stay with me till the end of today's episode and send us your comments either on Mixcloud or on Twitter at Housing Europe. We will be back right after this. At Making a House a Home, the podcast brought to you by Housing Europe, the European Federation of Public, Cooperative and Social Housing. I'm Michalis Boudis and today we're looking at migration and housing. As you may hear, the setting is not that quiet today as we're not in the Housing Europe premises but at the European Parliament where the Design and Inclusion final event has just concluded. I'm now joined by the Italian Socialist MEP, Brando Benifei, who has been the rapporteur of the European Parliament report on refugees, social inclusion and integration into the labour market. Brando, thank you very much for joining us. Could you please provide us with the main elements that the report outlines as the key for the inclusion of refugees? Well, first of all, my thank you for, for this occasion. My, my report underlines one basic factor, that um, if we uh, do social uh, actions, social policies that are uh, in favor of, uh, of uh, integration of refugees and asylum seekers, if we do them well, they will be uh, uh, policies that will ameliorate the conditions for everyone. Because if we, for example, that's one of the issues I touched in my report, if we invest more in uh, employment services that are more efficient, more tailor-made for each person, 
for the purpose to reach better the needs of asylum seekers and refugees, we will be building an infrastructure that will be useful for everyone, for every vulnerable group, for every person with special needs, etc. And also, if we look at the uh, um, general uh, uh, general consideration, if we do things this way, we will be able to overcome a, a problem that is at the basis of, of the failed integration. When local people feel that they are being deprived of their own opportunities to, 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 for them to be given to newcomers. We need to be able to build a discourse that is coherent in the sense that if we invest in the social inclusion of asylum seekers and refugees, as I already made an example of, a specific action with the employment centers, we are able to reach a better delivering of social services for an integration in society for everyone, for all vulnerable groups and for all people. And so it's important this employment uh, support and also I would say very important to have basic access to services, which includes also housing. housing. And this needs to be done uh, by having sufficient resources. There is the need for having uh, a, a specific attention of, uh, um, from the institutions to invest on this topic because it's an investment for the future. Mm -hmm. It's not just solidarity. It's about investing in the future of our societies because people more included, more active are more able to give back to the societies where they have been integrated. Yeah, we should be looking at the long term exactly as you highlight. You've already mentioned housing. Could you be more specific? What is the link in your opinion between migration and housing? Because we've seen in many countries, including your country and mine, my home country Greece, that a lot of things are happening towards accommodation rather than housing. But migration and housing are interlinked, right? Yeah, in my opinion, it's a delicate issue for a reason, because it's a typical uh, Uh, social uh, issue, the housing issue that is uh, the, the, and the, the affordable housing for everyone and uh, decent housing for everyone in, is something where we see uh, a tension uh, between uh, people uh, because it's often happening in many European countries that we don't have enough uh, uh, opportunities for good housing for everyone mm -hmm. and so if we also consider the asylum seekers into uh, this uh, context, uh, they are uh, uh, part of this uh, tension that is around this basic uh, service, basic need for everyone. So how do we solve this? And how I see in the in the next uh, budget and projects of the European Union for the next years. How can it be tackled? I think that we need uh, to overcome the political contingency that we see around this very tense issue of who should have a prioritarian access to housing, etc., mm -hmm. by having more uh, direct support from the European level to cities, to um, social housing organizations, to uh, uh, realities on the ground that do deliver services mm -hmm. for everyone and for asylum seekers in the specificity uh, and, and refugees, uh, so that we can Uh, help scaling up and making more uh, diffused the best practices that are economically efficient, that are delivering good results and good services for, for people. And we can uh, give, uh, we can say, some uh, 
um, uh, uh, support some uh, also uh, awarding the best practices so they can be uh, copied and can be used uh, all over Europe. Mm -hmm. To do this we need more resources devoted to that and we need more direct relation between local uh, uh, instances and the, the European uh, institutions because I think that in the intermediation with the member states and with the regions we see this tension around such a a, a complicated issue that is giving to everyone access to affordable housing, a tension that doesn't deliver results. We need to instead look uh, very carefully at what are the best uh, experiences on the ground and give them the support that is needed for making them examples to be delivered and expanded all over all over Europe. So closer collaboration between EU institutions and local level, more targeted investment, and yeah, replication of best practices where it's possible. Yes. These would be the keys in the next yes. uh, period in your Absolutely. In, I, I, especially in a topic like the one we are talking about now that is very much intertwining uh, different levels of institutions, local cities, uh, towns, regions, member states. This is not something that Europe alone can solve as a, mm -hmm. as a, as a social challenge. So Europe needs to be a multiplicator, first of all, all of uh, the best uh, practices, giving enough resources for them to be uh, uh, scaled up and to be developed. So I think uh, this co collaboration of different institutions and different roles for each institution is very important for the next period to be effective in terms of delivering good uh, uh, results for our citizens. Thank you very much for your valuable inputs, Brando. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're at, always at the European Parliament here in Brussels. This was Italian MEP Brando Benife giving us the decision-maker's view on migration and housing. Right after a short break, I will be joined by Kao Leuven, Professor Viviana Dauria. Viviana has been coordinating the Designing Inclusion Erasmus Plus project that aimed to address the interface between architecture, urban design, urban planning, education and the production of inclusive urban spaces for refugees and forced migrants. The project has co-produced knowledge about existing practices of civil society organizations, including, of course, uh, housing providers, in the reception of migrants and refugees in local urban areas, ongoing challenges and instances of innovation. Viviana, thank you very much for joining Making a House a Home and thank you for the nice event of Designing Inclusion. Could you please give us in a nutshell the main idea behind the Designing Inclusion project? Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for asking this question. So I think the, the title of the project says it all, Designing Inclusion. We wanted to focus on redefining, let's say, the terms of inclusion by really looking closely at practices, not just on the ground in terms of reshaping urban space, but also practices in terms of teaching. So looking at that interface was a very important thing. And that's why also designing was so crucial, uh, something that means 
also reshaping not just the space but also the way we talk about things, mm -hmm. including inclusion itself. Excellent. You presented a few minutes ago the key outputs of the so-called desync project at the conference. Would you mind sharing these again with our audience? Sure. So we basically have three main outputs. They are kind of composite uh, aggregations of a number of sub-outputs, but the main one is in fact related uh, when it comes to new teaching practices. It's really a review of what has happened in schools of architecture and planning across Europe. And, and we've tried to kind of systematically do this, uh, this review of practices that are trying to include or working on the notion of inclusion in urban space of displaced people. The second output is a is a course, a course that is uh, mainly targeting the educators, those who want to improve the way they teach about inclusion, so shaping the professionals of tomorrow. And this happens through an online course, uh, a so-called MOOC. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third output is a review of practices, which uh, has been developed in close collaboration with Housing Europe and Leuven, based on this whole idea of screening practices, ongoing, already kind of... Uh, well, very, very powerful solutions that are already challenging kind of mainstream uh, ideas about how to integrate and how to reshape cities by just doing it and working uh, on it in very interesting ways. Perfect. You mentioned all the key elements, the online course, especially the so-called MOOC. I think it's truly innovative and the handbook, of course. Where can uh, the, the listeners find all these information and resources online? Yeah, so we, we have a website for the project. It's www.desinc.org. So basically on that website, you not only can follow what we've been doing in the project, but there are already links uh, to the MOOC. It's also connected to a platform which allows for anyone to connect So even if we had a target group in mind, it's absolutely possible for everyone to join in a self-paced way. And the handbook as well is now available because we've just launched it mm -hmm. uh, today, basically, uh, as a publication that can be looked at. We probably will plan a, a revised edition with also some extra cases in it. But of course, in the meantime, it's available as uh, all the rest that we've produced on the website of the project. Yeah, and the work doesn't stop, of course. But based on your experience these last few years, final point from mm -hmm. my side... What should be, let's say, the ideal future, future toolkit for planners, architects and housing providers when it comes to actually designing inclusion? Well, one of the points we tried to make with the MOOC as well was to, to remain very action-oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, we've stressed this notion of action learning, uh, but it's not only action learning, it's actually being in contact, very close contact with those who are already embedded uh, in particular contexts working on this issue. And only in this way can you, rather than kind of dream of faraway ideal lands through design, actually already um, start intervening and working with the current challenges. At the same time, I think shuttling back and looking at a number of practices uh, to try and also scope out is very, very important. In general, I would say also never to refine uh, or to restrain, let's say, work to one sector and one way of looking. Always, for example, doing that also through interscalar reflections. If I'm working on a communal space in a housing unit, I'm also working on the relationship between the housing unit and the neighborhood mm -hmm. and the neighborhood and yeah. the city. Uh, and certainly having great respect for the work that's happening and learning from it because there's a lot uh, that has to happen. So having no kind of uh, prejudices uh, on the power of coming in as an outsider, but rather really understanding uh, what is already happening. Mm, voicing, I think, uh, refugees and displaced people themselves, understanding 
what their trajectory has been in this particular topic is also very, very important. And this is indeed something that most of the representatives of the best practices highlighted at the event. Viviana, thank you very much indeed for this. Thank you. And this is the end of the first part of today's show. Stay with us in the second half of this fifth episode where, as promised, I will be joined by my colleague, Mariel Willen, Housing Europe's research assistant, to put some facts, figures and best practices around housing and migration on the table. And last but definitely not least, we will be closing today's show by welcoming Fleur Eyman, uh, responsible for PR and communications at Startblock Rickerhaven, the project everyone is talking about when referring to successful case studies of inclusive housing projects. So, no time to lose. We will be back right after this to kick off the second part of today's show. And we're back for the second part of this fifth episode of Making a House a Home, the monthly podcast that is brought to you by Housing Europe, the European Federation of Public, Cooperative and Social Housing. I'm happy now to have with me my colleague, Mariel Willen, Housing Europe's uh, research assistant. Mariel has actually put together the latest research briefing of our observatory with the title Pathways to Social Inclusion. This was the second volume of a series of briefings dedicated to housing in post-2020 EU. Hi, Mariel. Thank you for joining. You have worked a lot, actually. I, I've seen you working a lot on making the link between housing and migration for this publication. Could you please give us and our listeners, uh, in a few sentences, the first things that come to mind? What are the main takeaways from this briefing? Uh, firstly, thanks, Michaelis, for having me here on to speak. Um, well, there's a, a lot uh, of takeaways, a lot of main points, um, because this uh, issue is you know, quite complex and uh, nuanced, but um, just quickly, um, some things that you know quickly come to mind mm-hmm. would be that, uh, and, and something that's often forgotten about, and which I think should be mentioned, is that even though we talk about social or demographic mix uh, quite often, which is important, uh, I think what also is important is that we have to remember that some uh, newcomer migrants uh, want to need their own uh, enclaves, and by that I mean spaces in which... Um, the dominant group is excluded or not allowed. And uh, in this case, migrants perhaps belong to a specific ethnic group or nationality uh, have a space where they feel safe and comfortable to uh, share their experiences, learn from each other and support each other. Uh, Moving to a new country can be traumatizing or re-traumatizing. And so I think this is important. Uh, The second point I would like to mention is that uh, actually many refugees want to go back home. And many times this is just not possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people might assume that people coming to Europe have made this intentional decision to do so, which is simply not the case. Uh, so I think we should bear that in mind and be sensitive to that. And just generally overall, uh, I think, um, for example, with the Designing Inclusion Project conference that was held recently, the subtitle to that was uh, How Local Players Are Making It Happen, as in social inclusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what was presented and what we you know, know now is that there are numerous projects that are up and running for years, if not decades, in which uh, migrants uh, or third country nationals or 
whatever terminology you would like to use, uh, are properly, decently, adequately, and affordably housed, living in communities uh, amongst uh, you know locals or natives, their fellow neighbors, their fellow countrywomen and men, fellow citizens. And so these types of housing projects and developments are happening in France, Netherlands, Germany, Spain, all over Europe. And uh, some are very you know progressive and innovative, um, involving tenants, including migrants and management and governments, governance, also in the design and planning of future homes and communities. And one that I noticed quite often, at first I was pleasantly surprised and didn't really understand, but then I quickly did understand because it makes a lot of sense, is uh, housing local youth with uh, young uh, refugees who are coming into the country. Uh, it's politically innocuous. I think a lot of people can get behind this idea and it is ben beneficial to society uh, because these young people live together, learn from each other, and uh, at the risk of sounding cliched, young people are the future. So these types of projects um, need to be scaled up and replicated. Yeah, we'll be listening actually uh, right after you from Fleur Eyman how Startblock is doing that in the Netherlands. The briefing, on the other hand, identifies certain bottlenecks in housing migrants at local and at national level. What are these, actually? Yeah, so uh, there's there's a few. Um, and really, you know, you have to look at it at a country-by-country country basis or a city-by-city city basis. It's hard to generalize. Um, you know, there are some countries in Europe or the EU that literally refuse to accept refugees and migrants and, you know, therefore house them. Um, but generally speaking, you could say that once asylum seekers have been granted residency status, a lot of the time in many countries they're faced with a lack of or just zero accommodation opportunities. Uh, for example, in Ireland, there's a housing crisis at the minute and uh, a lot of... Um, Migrants who have been granted residency status are forced to stay in the reception centers, in the direct provision centers, which is, of course, less than ideal. And so, you know, this inability to secure housing, which, again, unfortunately, many people, especially young people, are facing across Europe, uh, can create this uh, environment of competition. Um, uh, for example, as social housing waiting lists uh, can, can go into the tens and hundreds of thousands. Uh, and so we're one group to get priority over another uh, that would um, provoke a negative response. Mm -hmm. um, That's important. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then there's just lack of housing in, in general again. And this is partly because many countries are not building enough new homes, re reasons related to access to land, zoning, high construction costs, labor shortages, shortages and all this. And uh, many empty houses or vacant properties. Uh, so, you know, literally lack of housing is, is one bottleneck uh, or lack of housing in appealing areas or empty houses in unattractive areas. And this is related to both home ownership and private rental accommodation. And looking at private rental accommodation, uh, there exists a lot of discrimination and anti-migrant sentiment. So some private landlords will outright deny accommodation to certain groups. And if, if they are, certain groups are accepted, sometimes they are faced with exploitation, being charged too much rent, or living in subpar conditions that are low quality or overcrowded or unsafe. Um, and then other issues could be, um, for example, this type of insecurity of tenure would often lead to homelessness. And, uh, and actually there is a clear link between migrants and eviction, and then people, these people who become evicted becoming homeless. And, of course, many countries in Europe are, is, are unfortunately facing their own homelessness crises, uh, resulting in not enough beds, to to, beds and shelters to accommodate everyone. Uh, another issue would be socio-spatial segregation, 
which um, essentially is, you know, physical and social concentra concentration of refugees or migrants in specific neighborhoods, uh, which can lead to isolation from mainstream society. And also, I I'd like to mention uh, particularly vulnerable groups, for example, unaccompanied minors. These face the, the biggest challenges. Yeah, yeah, yes. And um, they have a very particular set of of needs and requirements which should be addressed, um, mm -hmm. yeah. I would say. yeah. So indeed, to sum up, lack of housing, competition, socio-spatial segregation, the addressing the needs of the most vulnerable groups yes. and the overall insecurity of tenure that anyway exists in uh, some countries. Yes, unfortunately, yeah. yes, yeah. Quite key, all these five issues. And to close our uh, conversation here, Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that just housing is not enough for the successful inclusion of migrants. This was one of the uh, main takeaways from the Designing Inclusion Conference. What other elements are among the prerequisites, let's say, in your view? Yes, excellent question. So, uh, though I might feel, and many others, that uh, housing is both a starting point and a foundation for everything else, these everything else elements would include uh, access to Uh, employment opportunities, uh, education opportunities, uh, and, and in that I would include thir third-level education, uh, training courses, and apprenticeship programs, uh, also healthcare services, both mental and physical, um, and ideally these services and facilities should be accessible or in relative close proximity, or there should be uh, access to public transport to, you know, to get to these places, uh, to put it that way. And uh, following on from the theme of uh, infrastructure and the built environment, Uh, other elements would be access to green spaces, parks, open, public, shared spaces. Um, on a related note, uh, Herbert Ludl of Socialbau in Austria, who presented at the Designing Inclusion Conference, uh, or the findings of their 15-year study, uh, one of them was that community facilities are incredibly important in promoting interaction, social interaction, multifunctional common areas and mm -hmm. spaces used for neighborhood gatherings, birthday parties, etc., Um, are very important. These facilities exist uh, or should exist in every housing estate. And uh, the ones that they studied, they were regularly used by 42% to 45% of the households. And then I really love this. Um, one interesting example was that the community laundry rooms had an occupancy rate of 82% of their possible operating time. You so, see? so people meet and talk, you know. That's it, the laundry room the can laundry be room, the solution. Yeah. <laughs> I never knew, you know. Thanks uh, a lot, Maria. Yeah. Stay tuned with the work of Housing Europe Observatory. More briefings are in the pipeline, right? Uh, yes, yeah. The next one will be on uh, affordability in housing production and construction. Thanks a lot. Last short break before we come back with our last guest for today. Stay tuned. Here. 
And we're back in the last part of making a house a home and we're about to take a virtual trip to Amsterdam. It only takes a short drive or metro ride from the city center to visit a housing project that can offer you an injection of optimism. There are 565 reasons, I think, for that in a rare mosaic that goes beyond the theories about social mix. That's Starport Rickerhaven, a true source of inspiration for housing associations that are confronted with integration challenge. Driven by their mission building a future together, Startblock shows how youngsters of total different backgrounds can support each other, establishing a community that goes beyond just housing provision, laying the foundations for a better future. Flair Eyman, responsible for PR and communications of the project, will tell us how they made it. Thank you for joining us, Flair. Yeah, thank you for the warm welcome in Brussels. What is the key then to start block success based on your experience? Um, I think Starblock offers uh, online and offline uh, open platforms where people can connect. Um, also, we constantly try to improve the ways we get people in touch uh, with each other and try to stimulate conversation. Um, so if you're not communicating with each other, it's basically impossible to understand the other person mm -hmm. and let alone create understanding. Um, and we see people become good neighbors or even become good friends. Could you please outline the model of Starblock? Because it sounds simple but I guess it's not that easy. What are the main stakeholders that bring actually the project to life? Yeah, um, well, we have a lot of stakeholders, but uh, I think the residents themselves are the key uh, stakeholders for making this project successful. Um, so Starblock is based on self-management and self-organization. Um, and self-management means that the residents themselves manage the project at the location. Uh, so they take care of maintenance, um, administration, communication, and the selection of new residents. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, everything that uh, residents can do themselves uh, is done by themselves. Um, they get professional support from uh, from the owner of the project, the CAI, and uh, uh, training. Um, and there are also paid jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and then, on the other hand, there's self-organization. And that also means that residents organize all sorts of activities uh, for each other. Um, we're also organized in a foundation called Starblock Actief mm -hmm. um, and it's managed by residents. Uh, they're independent and they have uh, a budget and knowledge to facilitate uh, projects. But whoever is organizing it is taking responsible uh, for themselves for making their activity happen. Right. And in the past two years, we have had loads of activities, uh, sports activities, educational activities, uh, parties, uh, all different kinds of activities. Um, and residents know it's about getting to know each other uh, and exchanging knowledge. In this way, we try to facilitate uh, each other's development. Um, and next to the residents, of course, this project uh, uh, would not be possible without the owner, the housing association, the CAI, and of course the municipality of Amsterdam who facilitated the project. Um, and also Socius Vona helped us develop the social model. Uh, even though they're not involved uh, anymore, they played a very important role in, that, uh, uh, in the development. Um, and then there's also a lot of social organizations supporting Starblock. For example, uh, the Refugee Foundation that nationally helps to integrate status holders. Um, but also national healthcare organizations and the Department of uh, Work, Income and Participation of the Municipality of Amsterdam. And um, because of self-organization and because of self-management, we know a lot of what is going on within Starblock. Mm -hmm. uh, because only in the self-management uh, are already 75 people involved in, in managing the project themselves. Um, but we do stress that residents are not aid workers. So if something is wrong, we report it, we signal yeah. it, uh, and then let the professional help uh, be done by the professionals. Good that you clarify that. Yep. It's a big and very diverse alliance, indeed. 
How would, how would you then evaluate these almost two years you mentioned of yes. work that start block? How would you name what would you name as the strong points and what would be any weaknesses that you see? Um, well, I think since we seem to be the first housing project uh, with this kind of concept, there was not uh, a manual available mm-hmm. that we could we could just follow. So um, after two years, we discovered a pattern in the way that we work, which we now call the start block mentality, mm-hmm. um, and it basically means that we uh, we plan something, we prepare something, we execute it, and then we evaluate whether it works or not. And if it doesn't work, it goes out of the window. And if it does work, we stick to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this way, uh, uh, we keep on going and collect more and more knowledge about good and bad experiences. And we basically experience until we drop. Uh, um, I would definitely call this our strongest point. Um, and also we see a stable group of Starblock participating. So uh, we're active and people know how to find each other if they need something. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of challenges as well, uh, such as language barriers, uh, cultural differences that people experience, and also, of course, mental issues, because yeah. some people come uh, with quite some quite difficult, difficult experience. experiences. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, to deal with, so they those barriers cannot be overlooked. Um, and even though uh, a fast group of residents is participating, uh, and is an uh, it's an illusion that all 565 residents will ever participate. Um, but we will always keep on working to enhance and increase participation. And lastly, after two years, uh, the dynamics change. So mm-hmm. uh, we have questions such as how do we keep the energy of everybody involved going and uh, uh, how to manage group dynamics uh, and how to introduce new residents that basically jump on the uh, riding train already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a key moment after two years indeed. So this brings us to the last point. How does the future of, Stra- of Startblock look like, both in Wickerhaven but also in other projects that yeah. you have in Pipeline? Yeah, As, uh, we, uh, well, the ni- it's very nice not to, to uh, share that uh, the 1st of December there will be opening a second Startblock project about the same size. And for us it's very exciting to see all the knowledge that we didn't have when we mm-hmm. started Stop Rieker have and now we sort of feels like we get a second chance to do it all again and maybe make it even better. So it's You very... have the manual now. So, yes, now we have a manual, yes. So it's very interesting to see how that will work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when you move into Stop Look, you can stay for a maximum of five years. You can yeah. move out earlier if you like, but the maximum is five years. Um, this means the first group of residents will uh, all be moved out in three years' time from now. And... Uh, Um, a new group of young people will get the chance to make the most out of Starblock again. Uh, For us, this means that we now move our focus from getting started and settled uh, more to getting prepared for the future and taking that next step in five years' time. Um, And it will be interesting to see if everybody will be able to uh, manage that next step and actually also uh, in three years' time, when we look back at it, we hopefully will really be able uh, to tell when we do research what Starblock actually gave people what kind of experience and knowledge and if it actually contributed to their future. Best of luck with Thank that. You. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Fleur. And you guys that listen to us, visit startblockrikerhaven.nl if you want to know more. That was all for today. It has been the fifth episode of Making a House a Home, the podcast brought to you by Housing Europe, the European Federation of Public, Cooperative and Social Housing.
housing. Uh, remember, tune in on our website, www.housingeurope.eu or on Mixcloud to get the latest episode on your computer or mobile device. Do you have any comments, ideas or proposals about topics we could discuss or people we could invite? Then feel free to always drop us a line at info at housingeurope.eu. Michalis Goodis has produced and moderated this podcast. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye. <music>